Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullitz. Well, we are very lucky today to have two new members of the Conservative Parliamentary Party and have also set up the newest parliamentary caucus in Westminster, known as, and you've probably heard about them recently, the New Conservatives. We have the co-chairs. We have Danny Kruger, Member of Parliament for Devizes in Wiltshire. Uh, he has worked in both the fields of politics and in journalism uh, before entering this place. And we have Miriam Cates, who studied genetics at Cambridge, became a science teacher at a school in Sheffield after gaining her PGS, PGCE. I should have known how to say that, seeing as I'm a teacher. <laughs> uh, served as a local councillor before becoming the newly elected Conservative Member of Parliament for Penistone and Stocksbridge in South Yorkshire. And Miriam has also been a member uh, of the Education Select Committee. I think still a member, Miriam? Yes. Still a passionate member. So look, we like to always kick off with questions about what got you into politics? Why enter the crazy world of Westminster? If we go to you, Miriam, first of all. Well, if I can start at the very beginning, um, I became interested in politics as a child, really. It's a very boring story, but I was given a radio age 11 that only tuned to long wave. And so the only thing I could listen to was Radio 4. So in the days before TikTok and WhatsApp, you know, my teenage rebellion was listening to the Westminster Hour when I should have been asleep. Anyway, so I was obviously very boring to my friends talking about politics, but I wasn't part of political. I was just interested in the process. Um, anyway, fast forward to 2018. I was a parish councillor at this point in the village where uh, I live, uh, very much enjoying working with the local community. And a family friend asked me to stand for the Conservatives uh, for the local council elections in a completely unwinnable seat. But I thought, Do you know what, give it a go. Um, tried it, enjoyed the campaigning, went to party conference that year. Three weeks later, I was parliamentary candidate for Penistone and Stocksbridge. Well, as a meteoric rise from parish councillor yeah. to parliamentary quite accidental, candidate. but <laughs> quite fortunate. <laughs> and Danny, what about yourself? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I was always interested in it. I studied history and politics at school and had a quite, a, I think, probably the wrong start in my political career because I started working in Westminster straight after university. Well, I did a postgrad, so I was in my mid 20s. Uh, and I worked for David Cameron when he was party leader. I worked for Ian Duncan Smith first. Um, ended up working for David Cameron when he was party leader as his speechwriter. But I then, I think I did the right thing because when I was, um, after a couple of years of that, in 2008, I left Westminster altogether because I basically realized that all the theory about how we need to empower local communities, how we need to trust people more, we need to you know, dismantle the bureaucracy of the welfare state, all the things that we were talking about, the early big society agenda. I realized actually what really mattered was how people themselves took responsibility in their communities. And it was a bit rich for me. I'd never done any real work on the ground, never been really worked outside Westminster to be saying all this stuff. And, but on the side, I'd set up this charity with my wife a couple of years before, which I was trying to run in parallel with the work in Westminster. And in 2008, it became clear I had to do one or the other. And I was more interested in the charity work as working in prisons and with ex-offenders. So I went away and did that for about 10 years. Um, and then came back around Brexit, after, just after the Brexit referendum and started working in government again. Well, amazing meteoric rise for both of you, and obviously delighted to have you. And I will declare for our listeners my interest, because I once walked up to Danny and Miriam and said, I think we should set up a little group, to which I found Danny and Miriam were already in the process of setting up the new Conservatives, and they bizarrely allowed me to join <laughs> on the journey with them. And so I am going to confess to this, and I am a member. Uh, I like to try and call myself a co-founder alongside them all. Uh, of the New Conservatives. Uh, so i uh, put all our cards on the table there. But look, the New Conservatives has been in the news recently regarding Rwanda, regarding immigration. But I know, maybe listeners don't know, that the group was always meant to be much more than just a single issue group, maybe like the European Research Group. So 
Shall I go to you, Miriam, first? And then Danny can come in as well. What is the new Conservatives? What is it all about? And why was it necessary to have this new group? Great question. So we are a group of Conservative MPs who were elected since 2016, so since the momentous Brexit referendum. And in our view, and in you know widely accepted by commentators, I think, there was a real shift in politics in the 2010s. And the 2016 was really the culmination of that, people voting against the establishment, against the status quo, wanting to, to use, you know, for want of a better phrase, take back control, decide who runs our country again. And since then, all the different elections, 2016, 2017, EU vote in 2019, sorry, the European Parliament vote, and then, of course, the election in which we uh, became MPs, were all about that, the, that realignment of voters from our traditional uh, Tories in seats like Danny's to new Red Wall voters in seats like ours coming together, wanting this new type of politics. So the, mem- the MPs in our group represent uh, that kind of vote because we've all been elected since then. Uh, and we feel that uh, in order to win again next time and in order to do the best thing uh, for the country, we need to move back towards that 2019 manifesto that really won people's votes, won people's hearts. And so we set up in order to put pressure, I suppose, on the government and our party to move back in that direction. Danny, is there anything you want to add on? Also keen, Danny, about what brought you and Miriam together? You know, you're a member of Parliament of Wiltshire, Miriam is in South Yorkshire. I don't know if you knew each other before being elected. So what was it that uh, brought you both yeah. together? Yeah, I think, well, we met, we all met in those first weeks and it just became obvious, I think, to Miriam and me that we shared a worldview. And I think it's so important that we, Miriam's point there about the New Conservatives representing the, the Tory base, as it were, the heartlands, places like Wiltshire, where I represent, and the Red Wall, because the message that we stood on, that, we, that Boris campaigned on in 2019, appealed just as much to the, the sort of Tory heartlands and to those new voters who you know, really are conservative. They've always voted Labour, they're so conservative, they always vote the same <laughs> way until they change. And they changed because we offered them a different message that we would put politics on their side at last and that the, the government should be governing with the values and the interests of the whole country at heart, in its mind. And I think, I hope Miriam and I, we agree on most stuff. And we, I think we share a quite a socially conservative vision. We don't speak for all new conservatives in that, I should emphasize, because I think that there's a more liberal strain to conservatism, which I really respect. And I think a lot of people who agree with us on Brexit, on border security, uh, on taxation, on policing, might not share our views on family and on the importance of, of you know, community power and so on. But that's okay. But, but Miriam and I agree on pretty much everything so far. And uh, I haven't found a major point of difference yet. Um, COVID. Yes. Well, actually, so, yeah, so she was a radical on COVID before I was, which was to her credit. So she saw that, this, that the whole approach was, was wrong. She was more of a libertarian on that and, and, than me. Anyway, so there will be some differences. But, yeah, we, we're basically, as Miriam said, trying to get nudge our party back to the people who voted for us in 2019, who are, I think, Wiltshire people and Yorkshire people and people across the country who share a common idea about the kind of government that they want. I wondered if we could just take a slight step back. Or maybe, maybe some of the listeners will be with me on this, which is uh, on, on the podcast, we want to look at things in Westminster that, you know, terms that people use all the time and maybe don't understand. So with groups like the New Conservatives, the ERG, uh, the One Nation group, for that matter, whatever the groups are, what are those groups? When we see them mentioned, they're collectives of MPs. Why do MPs go about setting them out, setting them up? Do they really, you know, hold the numbers that sometimes we read in the paper? I'm quite curious. I don't know if you 
could pick that up, maybe Miriam. Yeah, so I think there are a range of, of groupings within the parliamentary party. The parliamentary party is quite big. We started off with 380 MPs in 2019. Uh, and of course, the party represents lots of different particular interests, particular views. So you have groups of MPs coming together on a particular special interest. So that could be um, net zero, either for or against, for example, and working together on policy, working together on um, nudging the government in a particular direction. Uh, and then you've also got groups that are more uh, political, I suppose, like the ERG, like uh, potentially the New Conservatives, that are actively seeking to change government policy uh, and will work together on votes. But I think a lot of these groups are a lot looser than maybe comes across in the press. And also there's overlap. So there are plenty of people who are members of several groups. Um, but we don't seek really to, to, you know, overly persuade members how to vote or how to speak. It's really like-minded people coming together to try and maximise uh, our viewpoint within the party. And I wonder, Danny, you mentioned the connection between kind of grassroots, if you like. Is, is that a strong one? Is it something that, you know, with the new Conservatives, how do you get that connection? Now you've got that group and the kind of platform that you've laid out, how do you get that connection with the actual say, membership? Or yes, wider well, thanks, James. Yeah, so we, we would like to be, uh, to, well, we think we represent the grassroots of the Conservative Party, actually. We think that, we, you know, other groups can make legitimate claims along these lines as well. But we think we speak for a majority of our members and certainly the opinion polling and, and research you do bears that out. And certainly our experience locally reflects that. And we would like to be able to demonstrate that by uh, encouraging people to sign up and support the work we're doing here in Parliament. And we have a website, thenewconservatives.co.uk. I think. Good plug. Google it. There's some arms around in the news uh, website called New Conservatives, which is not us. Um, <laughs> Uh, make sure you get the right one. Anyway, and uh, we, you know, we say we send newsletters and we invite people to uh, events. We do. We launch policy papers from time to time. Uh, we hold events at party conference. And yes, and it would be great to get people to sign up to demonstrate the support, um, their support for our work. And we want to show that, you know, to be a conservative doesn't mean you have to take, you know, doctrinaire positions on everything. But there is a core set of beliefs that we think our members and our voters expect us to hold, which is, by the way, why this migration question is so important to us. It's not the only issue we campaign on, as Jonathan says, but it is fairly fundamental. And you can take different views on exactly how to deliver it, but that one really, really matters. Um, so I think, yeah, we're in a, we're on, I mean, you know, let's face it, we're in a battle for the soul of the party. In every generation, I guess that happens. I think the party has been so successful for so long because in every generation, a decision is made to restore the party to its core to its heart and to its, its, its the, the fundamental principles of conservatism. And we've got to do that again. And we'll only do that with the support of the members. So you, you say kind of um, a battle for the heart of the party. I mean, looking ahead for the new conservatives then, is there, a, is there a goal in mind? You know, if you kind of think over the next couple of years, do you, is there something clear that you've got that is like you want to, let's say, for example, we know we're going to have an election in the next you know, 12 months or so we have to. So it, would it be to influence that manifesto or is it even longer term than that? Yes, well, I think that's certainly our short to medium term objective is to influence that manifesto. And Jonathan mentioned some of the reports that we've produced um, on migration, on higher education, um, shortly on policing. Um, and some of those policies actually have been adopted by the government. And we very much hope that uh, those reports were taken into account when the manifesto comes around. So that's certainly our, our short term objective. But we also want to make sure that our members get re-elected. So MPs like us and Jonathan, uh, MPs who represent the Red Wall, MPs who represent the new coalition, 
uh, often who, because they, they're first-time Conservative MPs, don't have the same kind of uh, Conservative Party infrastructure, the same level of donations uh, that MPs in other parts of the country have. So one of our objectives is to fundraise, to help donate money to those MPs, their, their campaigns, and hopefully see more like-minded uh, colleagues back in Parliament next would, time. Would that include potential candidates? So is that current MPs and... PPCs, you know, people, would yes. you look to kind of help people come into the party? Yeah, we're certainly looking to build relationships with uh, candidates, um, you know, to support them in exactly the same way. And I think, you know, Danny talked about there is this battle for the soul of the party. And I think what's been going on over the last few days over the Rwanda bill has laid that bare, that there is this, uh, I won't call it a split, but there is this, there is this difference in view, which is uh, which should international law trump British law or should British law trump international law? And I think that that kind of characterizes the split within the party. Uh, and obviously we very much believe in, you know, in British sovereignty and taking back control. That, that's what the 2016 and the 2019 votes were about. Uh, and so I suppose our long-term aim is to shift the party back uh, in that direction. Now, it'll be fair to say that we as a group would receive some criticism from some quarters, producing papers and publicizing them with ideas because that would be deemed by some to be unhelpful the Whips office, who I think like to tune into our podcast, so it will probably be some of those. Uh, what is the purpose of doing the policy papers? Why not, as some might say, have those conversations in private rather than produce a paper? Yeah. I, I really find it difficult to understand this argument that the role of a Conservative MP is simply to silently vote for everything yeah. the government puts in front of you, which is, I'm afraid to say, the implication of a lot of that criticism. The idea that we shouldn't be having a debate in public about the future policy I understand it's a different issue when you criticise existing policy, and that's why it's been very hard over the last few days because we decided to abstain on the uh, Rwanda bill last night, so we broke the whip. That is a that is a that is a serious and difficult thing to do. It's sometimes necessary, as we as we feel it is now. But in general, the idea of just putting forward proposals for future policy for our manifesto or for what might come, be done in the coming parliamentary session, I think that's totally appropriate. And so, you know, in fact, it's consistent with government policy and with our manifesto commitment. And of course, colleagues in different wings of the party do this all the time and don't seem to have quite the same level of criticism. So I don't think it's wrong to do that as long as it's always courteous, always about policy, not personalities. We never criticize individual ministers. But uh, we do think it's important to say, as a group, we stand for these principles and we're making constructive suggestions. For instance, Miriam mentioned some of our policies are picked up, and Jonathan, you contributed to this. Our colleague Tom Hunt wrote a paper on uh, legal migration earlier in the year, setting out a series of reforms that would bring down the overall levels of migration, which, of course, as we know, are unsustainably high. A bunch of those have now been adopted by government, and we're very pleased about that. We wish it had all happened a year ago. Tom's paper shouldn't have been necessary. It should have been happening. But he wrote those, that paper. It was adopted by government. We think we've made a good contribution to policy. I think what's most interesting for me is, again, the other question and the other criticism that will be faced is, why another caucus? And we've heard, and I know it's a name that we all despise, the five families that have been told by the newspapers regarding the rights in particular of the Conservative Party. Why do you think there was such a need when there was already the growth group, the European Research Group uh, and others for another group? And actually, at some stage, does the right or the Conservative Party on that particular area need to just culminate into one in order to stop what Keir Starmer himself described as like the, the wannabe mafiosos, essentially. Well, we didn't pick that five families um, description. Um, and as I said, you know, these groupings are quite uh, loose. There are a lot of overlap between the membership. So, 
you know, really, we have tried to unite people over the last few days and weeks with a similar point of view. Some of those are part of our new Conservatives group, some of them not, uh, etc. So I think it's quite interesting being on the inside and watching how it's played out in the media, because often it's very, you know, it, it really doesn't feel like that uh, from the outside. Um, but I do think it's interesting how we are being characterized as the right of the party. And I would agree that, you know, that is certainly how, how it's seen. But aren't the things that we're saying and believing and doing just conservative? You know, aren't they just what conservatives believe now and always have been, you know, in the nation state, in the importance of law and order, um, in the importance of having control over borders? Aren't they just mainstream conservative views? And I think it says something about modern politics or the politics of the last 20 or 30 years that they are now seen as, as, as right-wing views and that the moderates are those who think that, you know, international law should, should trump ours, who don't think we need such strong border controls, et cetera. So I think it's, it, it says more about how politics has shifted rather than how we have shifted. Yeah, and I think that it is interesting that the right is quite fractured in terms of these different groupings because they've all got slightly different missions. ERG was obviously all about Brexit. Now it's, it's morphed a bit. The growth groups about the economy and so on. We are broader in our mission, but we're defined by our membership all post-2016. We're new because we were all elected since the 2016 referendum, and we stand for that realignment in our politics. But something great has happened in the last few weeks, and you saw it last night in the vote, is that everybody's now working together well. And, you know, the right, I mean, I agree with your point about it. The right is probably the wrong word, but we know what we're talking about. Uh, the conservative wing of the conservative party is, um, is, <laughs> exactly. is, um, it has been fractured, but, but we've done, I think really done something really great and it's brilliant to see everybody working together well on our side of these debates. And I think that's going to send us in good, put us in good stead. And last night, everybody voted together, I mean, not the whole group. Some people voted for the government, which I greatly respect, but a bunch of us all voted together. Nobody decided to vote no. We all voted as a group to abstain. So it shows that there is unity mm. on our side of this debate. Yeah. On the, on this point about the right, because this is a debate I used to have when I was in the Home Office of Pretty, which my view was, actually, if you look at the polling, uh, on that issue in particular, I would say she's a centrist, mm. if you look at where she is. Because yeah. there were people that would call for much tougher restriction on migration than even the Prime Minister came out with a few weeks ago, right? There were people who would like much lower immigration than we predicted on that. And so I, I kind of wanted to unpack some of the issues as you know, you've related it to the to the referendum. Mm. So I'm curious about how you see a kind of future voter coalition. I guess in crude terms, if you look at the 19 coalition that Boris won, is that still there? Could it still be won? Because a lot of the things, you, you know, to play devil's advocate, you could argue a lot of the things that we promised would happen haven't happened, mm. you know, for maybe valid reasons with COVID and so on. So I wondered, like, how, you know, do you feel strongly that that is still there and how could you go about capturing that? Yes, I do think the demand is still there for those views, for that kind of politics. And I think if you look beyond the UK, you're seeing across the Western world, really, a demand. For, I mean, it is characterised as populist, uh, often in a derogatory term, but I think what they really mean is, is policies that people want. Um, and I think the demand for that absolutely is still there. And again, that's why we've we formed this group, because we strongly believe if we just get back to that position, that 2019 manifesto position, then those voters are potentially there. Um, and, you know, we are producing these papers, we are advocating these policies, but they were all things that we stood on the last manifesto that the party committed to. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it, it, it's very valuable. But talking about the long term, I think the, the problem is, and this was revealed in, in the 2010s, that the views of those in Parliament do not, are not representative of the views of people out there in the country. And you pick Pretty Patel's view, but, you know, you can look at other things like 
you know, capital punishment, which is not something I personally support. But you know, there's a strong support out in the country for capital mm. punishment. And yet I bet you wouldn't find a single MP or maybe one uh, who would vote for that. Um, so, I, and I mean, you know, that's just a, a random example. But there is this huge mismatch between the, the general views of, of those in Parliament on social issues and economic issues and the, those in the country. And I think really, in the interest of democracy and our party, in the long term, we have to get back to a more representative parliament. Danny, Danny how, how easy do you think it would be to recapture that 19 coalition? Could we, could, is it now possible to still do that at the next election, I guess is a, a, a simple way of asking it. Yes, I think we've left it very late mm -hmm. because the public aren't going to be won over just by promises. And I think Rishi is right to focus, as he's been trying to focus this year, on delivery. The problem is that we're really struggling with delivery. And the public aren't necessarily going to be impressed by some, some adverts showing that inflation has been halved or whatever. We need to really deliver. And I think stopping the boats is probably the most salient one of those, but on the economy as well. Um, but you know, I do feel that we've left it very late to start making the, the putting that coalition back together. I think we should try and do it. I agree with Miriam that it's all there, that the, the same voters are there, they have the same instincts, the same aspirations, the same distrust of the centre and of, you know, what, what we might call sort of establishment values. In fact, that's been reconfirmed, I think. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid to say our party, I, I feel, is playing into that by, uh, you know, returning to a, to a model and a politics that seems more reminiscent of the coalition years than of the post-Brexit years. Uh, so I think we are not going about things in the right way if we're trying to rebuild that coalition. But that said, I do think the PM has the right um, wishes to deliver on small boats and on the economy and on the NHS. I think we are, you know, at the last, you know, at the 11th hour to, to, to try and do it. But in answer to your question, and echoing Miriam's point, those voters want the same thing as they did before. And politics has fundamentally changed since Brexit and since the Brexit referendum. And the future for the right isn't in trying to contest the, the centre ground with the Liberal Democrats uh, mm. and, and the, the Starmer's Labour Party. It is boldly laying claim to that majority opinion, which is unfashionable in London, but actually is where the future is. And the future is, with, is, is conservative. It's not, it's, not, it's not in this sort of centrist liberalism, uh, kind of hyper-globalised technocratic modernism. It is in a more authentic conservatism that speaks to the real wishes and aspirations of ordinary people, which are quite old fashioned about family and neighborhood and nation, but also very of the moment and actually very consistent with the age of technology because what people really want is a life that's made more free and more possible through te technology, but also protected from tech. Mm -hmm. Miriam does a whole lot of work on online safety, for instance, which I think is a huge potential area for our politics, protecting families from the devastation that the internet can do to us, while also making great opportunity, you know, great value out of the huge opportunities for the, the future economy that, that the digital revolution is bringing about. And tell me if this is unfair, but you do have quite a unique perspective on a bit of a discussion at the moment, which you touched upon, which is the 2015 coalition that David Cameron won and managed to get a majority on and where we are now. You, you were involved quite you know, uniquely in both. And I wonder, putting aside that we might be able to get maybe a bigger majority, as Boris demonstrated in 19 and 2015, it, do you think fundamentally it is possible to recreate the 20... I'm not saying that Rishi is trying to do this, 
but it is a debate that's happening in the media. Some people say it's just not there. Scotland's different. You don't have it in minivans. But I wonder what your thought was on Danny. Like, if you really wanted to, could you go and get the 2015 coalition, which would deliver a majority to the Conservatives? Well, as you say, I think there are some essential political differences. You know, the Lib Dems aren't going to collapse in the way they did in 2015. Uh, Labour are going to do well in Scotland, you know. So, um, a little bit similarly, in 2019, we had Corbyn, we had Brexit, we had Boris. We had all, you know, so every election is different and there are yeah. advantages and disadvantages. But no, I don't think we can go back to a 2015 model. I think, the, I think even then, and you know, I did work for David Cameron. I worked for him in opposition before he was in government, uh, so many years ago. But I was a great supporter of his agenda and his early years mission, uh, which was about social reform. Very bold on public service reform. Very Eurosceptic as well, if you remember as he was to a degree in government before he decided to back the Remain campaign. Uh, tough on the European Convention on Human Rights, which is obviously a big debate now. Um, but what I really applauded him for, and my, my sort of contribution was, was on the social policy agenda and the big society and the idea of devolving power to local communities, to supporting families much more directly, and dismantling the bureaucracies of the welfare state. Do you remember all that stuff that he did, did with Ian Duncan Smith? Mm. Um, in those early years. I mean, there was a really, I think, an important reform agenda, which sadly, and this is where I sympathize with, with what, what he says, you know, Brexit has derailed all of that whole social reform agenda that he was going to, once he got into power in 2015 with the majority, he was going to start delivering on. So I think we do need to get back to that Cameron social agenda to a degree, although I'd be much more socially conservative than him. I don't think he was strong enough on family <laughs> values. But, um, but there is a domestic agenda that we've lost sight of in all of our Brexit battles and then COVID and Ukraine and so on, which I, I, I wish we could get back to. What's really interesting to me is you've used both of you, the word family, a lot. And it was certainly a word that I never thought or never used when I was out on the stump, maybe unless it was talking about households or mm. when you're talking about taxation, it was how to help the individual keep more money in their pocket. I think it's fair to say that this trust was kind of very much along that agenda. And after what happened there, a kind of damage was done to this lower tax idea. But both of you, particularly you, Miriam, have been this consistent champion for family about how to reduce taxation on family, but also how to support family. Something that has probably been quite unfashionable, albeit mm. in the last couple of months, there's definitely now been a move, even by opposition parties, yeah. to start talking in terms of family. What gave you the strength in your conviction to believe in that? And what does this idea of family mean to you? Because again, I appreciate there'll be a lot of media misconceptions about what you think family is versus what others who maybe mumble and groan anonymously in the newspapers say. Well, I think when you look at the polling, family is the most important thing in most people's lives. And on Monday, with the Centre for Social Justice that Danny just mentioned, Ian Duncan Smith, we launched a report into the state of Britain and particularly the, the most vulnerable people in Britain. And even in the most vulnerable communities in this country, people named family as the most important thing in their life. And the statistics show that if you are born into a strong, stable family and a good home, you know, reasonable quality, you've won the lottery of life um, in, this, in this country and you're likely to, to succeed in life. If you are born into an unstable family, into chaos, if you see your parents split up, if you lose your house, those kind of things, you are far less likely to succeed in all areas of life. It's that simple. And I think most ordinary people know that. And I think talking about family and strong families and strong relationships is not really anything to write home about in communities like ours. But suddenly in Westminster, it's very difficult to talk about it. We can come on to why that is. But I think, you know, family is so important to people, and yet we do so little in our politics to support families. You've talked about taxation. Our tax 
tax system actively makes it difficult for couples to stay together, to bring up children. It's, we pay far higher taxes as families in this country than families in most of the Western world. It's very, very difficult to start and raise a family in this country, and that's bad. Our tax policy should at least be neutral. It certainly shouldn't be anti-family. Um, and we've become very individualistic in the way, as politicians, we look at policy, whereas, of course, that's not how most people's lives work. They operate in families and households. So I think you know, that's one thing. We absolutely have to support families and family life. But I think the reason it's become difficult to talk about is the one thing that, that British politi politicians, British liberals, least like to be caught doing is seeming to be judgmental about people's individual lives. And I completely agree. We are not in a position and shouldn't be to judge anybody's individual choices. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to talk about what's important to people and the kind of general policies that will help the po uh, population. And, you know, one example is you know, strong, strong families and, and married, strong marriage relationships and strong cohabiting relationships are actively good for children. And when parents split up, it tends to be bad. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, children from uh, brought up by single parents don't sometimes do brilliantly. They absolutely do. And single parents are heroes uh, from my perspective. But why shouldn't government be able to say, actually, let's look at how we can help people strengthen their relationships, how we can help people stay together, whether that's through the tax system, whether that's anything else. Uh, I think we need to be bold and speak about these things. And I think it does ruffle feathers in Westminster and you don't get a good deal on Twitter. Who cares? But people out there in, in, you know, in ordinary communities, in ordinary towns and villages are happy to talk about it. On some of those issues, and you mentioned this earlier, Miriam, which is, um, and I think, I hope I'm not um, um, misquoting it, but I think Nick Timothy said this in the Onward paper as well, which is that point that the views, I mean, frankly, in Parliament, I would argue, but certainly in the Conservative Party are not reflective of the views of the country at large. And, and Danny, you mentioned earlier about how you connect the new Conservatives to the grassroots. I'm curious about what, frankly, all of you think. How can we get that connection to be closer, mm -hmm. to be more representative? Because I think if you look at the 90, I think if you look at the referendum in 16, I think if you look at the fact that people, what well, I think I, I always thought Ed Miliband was broadly onto something with his manifesto. These are all things where I felt there was just a disconnect from Westminster to to where the where the bulk of the public were, which is why it caught caught people by surprise, perhaps. And I'm curious. I feel. I feel like the, a lot of the things that you, you and Danny have talked about today, Miriam, are things that the public, you know, there is a big agreement on. Actually, if you go out into the country and you do focus groups, uh, we did some this week and immigration dominated the groups. And I'll tell you, frankly, they hated all politicians. Yeah. And they don't want Labour. They're not talking nicely about Keir Starmer. They think all politicians have completely deserted them. And these were groups in the red and blue wall yeah. and immigration dominated both groups. And I'm just curious about how I go, go to you first, maybe Danny. How can we get that connection and how can we improve the connection between, frankly, the public and Westminster? Yeah. I mean, part of it's just um, practical matters about how we choose candidates and so on. And I think we've um, prioritized candidates who are either, you know, impress have impressive CVs of like, you know, senior jobs or whatever, or they're just good local campaigners, both of which are really helpful. But actually, it's what do you believe? I don't think it's a question you really get asked very much when you're no. going for a candidacy in our party. And we, it would be great if we selected people who believe what the, what the public believe um, and what our, our activists believe. But, but there's a bigger question, I think, about our politics. And there's a, there's a dispute or there's a sort of distinction in, in political theory between what the state is for. Is it there just to sort of manage a free society, to be neutral about the kind of lives that people live, neutral about the kind of society we are, as long as it's safe and the, you know, the, the weights and measures are fair? You know, literally a kind of night watchman state that doesn't do much except keep the peace. 
or is society is is a statement to represent society and actually help to uh, to 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 um, develop society in a certain direction in in keeping you hope with the way that people want it to go, and and I think we've we've crossed politics left and right. We've tended more in recent decades to the former idea that society that the state should basically be neutral about people's lives. It's just let them get on with what they want. Its job is really to facilitate their individual freedom. Uh, and to create opportunity rather than to help them become the kind of people they want to be and to help families and communities to prosper. And it's much more difficult to get into this latter territory. It's much harder for politicians to start expressing a preference for the kind of society we should be. But I actually think that is what the public want of us. They want us to reflect their values back at them, not to be neutral and indifferent to them. So I think we have to have the confidence to say what we believe uh, and to actually use the state in a way that we have to always have a liberal basis to this. We can't be dictatorial. We shouldn't be making, you know, taking choices about people's private lives, for instance. But we should, I think, be helping to fashion the kind of society that people want and be quite deliberate about that. Do you think part of that toughness to get to that kind of conversation is because we live in such a 24-hour news cycle and social media-dominated world that politicians have fallen into the trap? I've certainly said this on previous podcasts that we've recorded, that particularly with COVID, the three-minute speech mm. maximum to give, the 30-second clip that goes on the social media, has that made it harder? And obviously with the government controlling the order paper and the ability for how long debates take place, have we fallen into the trap of being just about uh, reading the government line out and giving the clip for our social media rather than actually going back to the parliament that I used to Love and admire watching the old YouTube videos back of the debates long into the night, hashing out you know different theoretical arguments for and against in order to actually at least have the discussions, understand the debate, and then find maybe consensus much more easily than we do in this current Westminster bubble. I don't know if Miriam, you've got a view on that one. Um, yeah, I think what it's done is forced people to try and make complex debates simple when they're not simple. Uh, and then we always uh, run into trouble. And, you know, an ex example of that would be, you know, you go on a TV show, let's say you, you talk on and off for half an hour about a whole range of issues, the economy, society. And then they take one clip out of context that completely doesn't reflect everything else you said on the show. And then it goes viral on Twitter. And then you have to defend it saying that's not. But it, it really puts you off trying to dig into the difficult issues, trying to speak honestly about what you think. Um, and that, that is a problem. Um, but I think, you know, what you've got to just do is keep going, keep making the same point again and, and again and again, learn from how you misinterpret it and, and rephrase it. So one of the things I, I've, issues I've got involved in is, is talking about low fertility rates and how the birth rate in this country is going down and the economic and social costs of that. And the first time you talk about it, I mean, the headlines are, are just crazy, but you've just got to keep going and keep making the case, the economic as well as the social case. I think that is what draws people in Westminster in because a lot of people here think it's all about money. Whereas I think people in the wider country don't think it's all about money as, as shown by the Brexit vote. Have you ever wavered out of interest? Have you ever thought about maybe I should just not talk about that? Has that ever crossed your mind? Because <laughs> um... I'll be honest, Mary, just before you answer that, I certainly have had many moments where I've thought, I on don't immigration, say, for example, yeah. should I stay quiet? But actually, because we've said, like, I have a firm set of beliefs, I'm not going to allow myself to have the, the minority mob rule on yeah. social media dictate to me how to speak. I, I think it's important not to have every battle all at the same time. I need um, to learn that lesson. I accept. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I think, well, actually going back to COVID, which Danny mentioned, I, until 
COVID, which was actually only, what, three months after we were elected, um, I certainly, well, I, I had no opinion about what kind of MP I'd be, what I'd get interested in. I mean, it was all, it was a shock to become an MP, I have to be honest. So I was kind of still acclimatizing. And, and COVID, I suppose I had that choice early on in COVID. Do I, frankly, start going against the government line and opposing these, these policies or not? And I think once you've done that once, the kind of fear factor of what will happen to you if you don't just trot out the government line goes. And maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, probably don't ask the whips. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think it is, it is, every decision you make as an MP it is you do agonise. Do I vote in the best interest of my constituency? Do I do it in the best interest of the party? In the, in, in the best interest of the country? It's really, you know, these very, very finely balanced decisions and, and every MP will have a different view on everything. Danny, I wondered what you th thought as well on, on that. You, you talked about having the right people become MPs. And I think, listening to Miriam and Jonathan there, I remember working for Pretty when she was obviously in the paper a lot for the stuff at the Home Office and just thinking, why would you do this with your life? I, w I wouldn't, I'll be honest. Because I just, you know, I mean, it just seems like a hell of a lot of stress and you read the comments under anything that you guys post on social idea. media. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely a bad idea. And uh, and I, I kind of think, and, and I was also connecting that to when Cameron was in, he had the A-list and I was talking to someone and I felt like, I felt like at that time when the Conservative Party were rebuilding, they were telling people outside of the norm, we want you to come and try and be an MP. You know, I'm sure, you, know you still need to go through the same processes. And I, I wonder if it all connected together. Are, are we, do, is it an attractive thing to do for a lot of people now becoming an MP? Because there's a lot of reasons not to do it. And, and it kind of, then you get into that, just people from the beltway. And as you said, maybe that becomes just less diverse, right? Generally, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. Yes, well, there is a paradox that um, in the old days, before the universal franchise, and it was just aristocratic men who could be in mm. politics, you actually had, a, I think you probably had a broader range of personality types. Yeah. Whereas now you can, the politicians come from everywhere, sort mm. of demographically, but you've basically got one type of person, more or less, you know, someone who's up for this weird job that we all do. Yeah. which is quite tightly defined by the by the conditions. I mean, obviously, we are there's a diversity of character in, in Parliament. I mean, they've got Jonathan. But still, we're all we're all we all know what we're doing in this. We all have to do the kind of same kind of job. Yeah. Um, and that's how, how it should be. Um, I do think we need more uh, diversity. But, but crucially, as we were saying, we need diversity of opinion. Um, and, and people who represent the values of the country. But but in terms of um, where it's, if it's worth it, I mean, I, I was obviously involved in politics when I was you know, in my 20s, and then I left for 10 years because I basically thought I didn't really like all, for all the reasons you've given, James. Um, and I came back partly because I thought, actually, this is the way to do the change, partly because I just love the power and the glory, and I want to be important. <laughs> uh, it wasn't out of my system. Um, and but, but all the reasons I thought that I, that I gave myself years ago about why I wouldn't want to be an MP, um, you know, just the kind of Westminster bubble experience, the, the difficulties of casework, of being prominent in your community that isn't in a way that you might not enjoy getting grief on social media. All of those things, actually, I don't find nearly as problematic as I thought I would. And I actually enjoy all pretty much every aspect of the job, local, national, all the funny aspects of it. Um, but it doesn't mean I think I'm very good at it all. I mean, I think you're always struggling as, a, as an MP, or you should be thinking you're failing in one part or another or all of them simultaneously. So I don't think it's an easy job to do, but I don't think I don't see to detect any shortage of people who want to do it. Great guess, people want to be MPs. Are they the right people? people. Is my question. Well, um, I mean, I don't want to be rude about about politicians because I think we get enough of that uh, from the outside. But 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think we get. I don't think we get the best. I don't think we necessarily get the best mm. people. But I mean, you know, I don't think I'm the best person. I, um, I'm not sure we should, we can have some sort of weird meritocratic talent show to get the best. It's got to be. Mm. You've got to be elected by your local party and your local constituency. I think we can make the job easier for people. Uh, I think if our culture was better and our establishment culture was better, it would be possible to get people who just have ordinary values into politics, shouldn't have to conform to this weird establishment kind of orthodoxy in order to mm. do this job. So we could, I think, broaden the net if we improved our, our kind of national conversation to say it's acceptable to be patriotic, pro-family uh, and conservative. That would help. I enjoyed Johnny's, Danny's... Uh cheap little jive with me i've been desperately trying to hold off on the hugger hoodie uh for a long period of time so if anyone wants to send danny kruger hoodies uh please do because i'll certainly very conservative speech uh, i'm looking right, forward to for looking forward to that yeah. no and look, i it is amazing look i i think a lot of women have said what interested me and the reason for viewers i'm gonna be and listeners is perfectly frank i went to danny and miriam because i was thinking for a long time about the type of politics i was believing in and after this trust fell i was trying to understand what i thought the future of the conservative party was and I'm open to admitting that when I came into politics, I was definitely socially conservative, but also economically what is now deemed trussite. The idea that the state should be small, free markets and sort of, you know, some businesses in the UK will fall because of that. But, you know, that's ultimately competition. And that's not a bad thing. And actually representing the seat that I do, there is no way that someone like Stoke-on-Trent will ever regenerate without the state mm -hmm. having a role. And it doesn't have to always be cash. It can also be about building partnerships between the private and public sector, about strengthening communities in which the ones I'm sure Miriam, uh, Danny as well serve, you know, those little towns and villages that actually with a bit of support, a bit of funding, a small amount of infrastructure, a small amount of training in some cases as well, you can really build those partnerships. And I personally had watched Danny and Miriam for a long time, although it sounds weird actually, so I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I, I had read a lot of what Danny and Miriam said in the newspapers, seen them in the chamber, was always mightily impressed by their conviction and their beliefs and wish that uh, maybe I was able to put things certainly much more eloquently than I'm able to, uh, that, uh, that they both do. And ultimately for me, I saw the future, which is why I'm sort of bigging up this big thing now. In Westminster, everyone loves a power couple. We had <laughs> Blair and Brown. We had Cameron and Osborne. Is the future Kate and Kruger? Well, you had Thatcher and Joseph as well, uh, which is the one I always... Uh, Teased Miriam with, mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I think there is a. Um, I mean, I hope. We, I mean, it'd be brilliant. I would really hope that we both survive the election and can carry on doing this job and working together. And, um, and but we represent a you know a lot of. I think a, not just public opinion and party opinion, but in Parliament, there's a group of us. Jonathan, you're one of them in our intake, mm -hmm. 2019, but across the parliamentary party who share these values. And yeah, I mean, I think I hope we can um, we can help to influence the future i mean there's still this rest of this parliament to play for and i think everything's open we actually do i mean the frustration is because rishi obviously is um you know we're, we're battling with him a bit over this issue on migration at the moment and there are some other questions as well naturally enough but actually he he chimes with so much of what we believe in he was a brexit voter he stands for strong families he's concerned about the, what the internet is doing um he's you know believes i think miriam can say because he's she's the one dealing with him on it in, in the importance of you know sanity and common sense in the whole sex and gender battle, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that we think he stands for and that we want to we want to help make happen because we're up against a, an establishment in the civil service, obviously in Labour, but also I'm afraid in the, the, the one wing of our party which doesn't want to do this stuff. So we need to empower the PM 
to do what I think he wants to do and what the party as a whole and the country really wants to do as well. And I think it's really interesting because there is this misconception, I think, as you say, the label, the right is attached to the new Conservatives, but actually on the economics, yes, whilst it does believe in wanting to have a lower taxation, a lower tax burden, it wouldn't necessarily go anywhere near as far potentially as the growth group. And actually some of the papers we produced on taxation and on skills would actually be much more naturally interventionist to some of our more maybe elder colleagues who would sit, but the long-term benefits mm. of supporting families and stuff. Miriam, obviously, Danny touched on sex and gender stuff. Again, something that you're widely linked to. A lot of people will say, fairly or unfairly, that this is some cultural war and it's just basically done for chief digs. Why, in your opinion, would that is that a lazy label to use? And why does this issue, do you think, matter so much to people? Well, I, I think it is a culture war. Um, and I think it's one we've got to win. And we know that culture is extremely important to people. It's sometimes dismissed as a secondary concern in, in Westminster as secondary to economics, but I don't think it is. And I don't think, you know, I would say that polling and elections show how important culture is. Um, but, you know, it's fundamental to how society works and how society has been established throughout generations and thousands of years, even the difference between men and women. I mean, there is no, you know, more binary uh, aspect of humanity than whether you're male or female. And I think the, even the very fact that we've got to the position where respectable people can say that gender is fluid or there's a hundred genders or boys can become girls, is it, it, it's not only ridiculous, it's, in, it's incredibly dangerous. In, if we're teaching our children that, we know about the, um, you know, the implications for women and girls' safety and all sorts of other things. But fundamentally, it's not true that there are a hundred genders. And I think if uh, if we're allowing that uh, untruth to, to propagate through society, then we've got big problems. And so I think it's very important to stand up for uh, what we know to be true, for primarily to protect children, but also to protect the sanity um, of our country. And you know, there is a huge, again, in the grassroots, it's not controversial to say that men should use men's toilets, that women should use women's toilets. But as Danny said, we have got this uh, very different establishment view in, in Westminster that find it harder to say that. But we saw from Kemi Badenoch last week, seeing increasingly uh, in the press, people are recognising the importance of this debate and the importance of, uh, of sanity. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? And I think that's what worries me most about uh, a potential Labour government is that we have, we have won some battles whilst we've been in power. Um, and I'm worried that it will go the other way next time, which is even more reason why we need to be pushing for these things now. I've got a final question for both of you. So I'm going to let you off and you don't have to name the person. But I want to ask you if you think that in the future, whenever that may be, the next leader of the Conservative Party would be a new Conservative. Is that a possible scenario? I, well, I think, yeah, I think there'll be a new Conservative in philosophy, whether they're one of our current, you know, members or not. I mean, Jonathan is going to have this tough fight. Well, I was uh, wondering if this is where you're uh, out the uh, Jonathan Gullis. Uh, uh, you know, Why is this? Tea? It's yeah. going to be Jonathan, you know, versus someone. No, um, it will be... Uh, I, I, well, answering seriously, I don't think we will ever get back into power um, if we go out of power. And frankly, I think we're going to struggle the next election without this as well. So I think the next election we, we win will be one in which we're standing to, get, to leave the ECHR, to restore sanity quite deliberately in this, in this kind of cultural questions, particularly around sex and gender, but also around what goes on in schools. There's, there are these cultural questions around, around the management of our nation, around common sense in policing. Um, certainly border security and relations with the European court and a whole bunch of other things. I would see us investing much more in defence. Uh, I think we've got to be much more realistic about what te technology means for the world of work and for ordinary family life. There's a bunch of stuff that is just kind of off the radar at the moment, outside the Overton window in our politics that we need to just get real about. 
And if we can do it this side of the election, I think we've got a really good chance of holding on. If we go out, yes, in answer to your question, it will have to be someone who believes in this stuff if we're ever to win power again, because there's no point trying to contest the centre ground with Labour. And Miriam, would you agree with that? Yes. It's nice, succinct <laughs> answer. And I told you we agreed. Yeah. On that bombshell, so we haven't outed your leadership campaign, Jonathan. You'll be pleased oh. to know. He's That's got a website. Danny, he's got Danny, a website. Danny and Miriam get enough grief, I'm sure, by being associated with his colleagues, let alone now, yeah. now this. Well, I think so, we yeah. might have set another. I mean, if the One Nation is listening, I think they really will tool up now. They think you've come <laughs> <to the country. laughs> um, But on, on that bombshell, uh, thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Danny, so much for joining us. It was, that was fascinating. Thank you. And remember uh, to our listeners that you can subscribe to the podcast so you get the weekly update for when we produce the next episode. We would love you to leave us a rating and a review. And you can follow us on X or Twitter at Whitehall Pod UK. Thank you. You have had a book out, Danny. Do you want to quickly... Oh, you can <laughs> have my book. book. That's right. My book called, called Covenant, The New Politics of Home, Neighbourhood and Nation, available on you know the internet. And, uh, and yes, and sign up to our, our website, please. Ooh. And there's the bell, yeah, so that thanks. means we've got to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bye-bye.